0: Every once in a while you're going to get weird stuff, right? So you never know, keep showing up, you might find some weird stuff happening at TREACH, right? That's what this series is all about. We've discovered and realized that over the last several months as a church that values biblical relevance, we've got to force ourselves and challenge ourselves to look at Scripture that not only we enjoy and find helpfulness in and hope and encouragement in, but even those passages of Scripture that challenge us, that we don't fully get, or we might consider weird. And so that's what we're doing. If you were with us last week, we started with Genesis chapter 6 and that portion of the flood narrative that seemed to not make sense at all but really pointed out to us that when all things kind of go awry, God can still be with us and God can still make all things new and we found hope and and encouragement in that. And this week uh, we're going to face a a difficult text as well, Um, one that uh, some of us might be familiar with and some of us might not. Occasionally, it's referred to as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you've heard of the text, you know it's quite dark. Uh, it is not positive and uplifting. It's actually about deep, dark sin and the ways in which that challenges all of us. And so today, we're going we're gonna to have a, a heavy topic. I just want to give you a fair warning. Uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of excitement and enthusiasm, But there will be a positive word and there will be hope in the midst of all this. But first, we've got to kind of travel through the difficult passage and better understand not only what it was intended for in its day, but how it's applicable to us even to this day. So I hope you'll hang with me and I hope you'll hang in there uh, as we get through what can often be a difficult passage. So, Uh, In Genesis, there's a kind of a section of scriptures between Genesis 13 and 19. It is sometimes referred to as the Lot cycle, and it's about this guy named Lot. Now, if you don't know Lot, you might know his uncle. His uncle is Abraham. Remember Abraham, the father of many nations. And Abraham is the one who kind of helps to establish the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Islam tradition, and he is the father of many nations. And therefore... He's going to have some descendants, right? And one of those descendants is Lot. And a part of what we know is that uh, Abraham and Lot um, kind of take up a time together, and they actually become economically um, healthy, In an agrarian society, they have lots of animals, they have lots of herd and lots of uh, acreage, and they become so wealthy, the two of them, that they realize they cannot continue to stay together. They've got to kind of divide and multiply, if you will, right? And so Abraham calls his uh, nephew over and says, Hey, Lot. You've been doing well, I've been doing well, life is really healthy and whole, and and I just want to say, I think we would be better off if you go your way, I'll go my way. Wherever you want to go, we'll be fine. Abraham literally says to him, hey, if you want to go this way, I'll go that way. But if you want to go that way, I'll go this way. You you just scout out the land. And sure enough, Lot does that. This is in Genesis chapter 13. And as he scouts out the land, he looks over what we now know as the Dead Sea, And he kind of sees the fertile plain on the south end of the Dead Sea. And he says, I'll go there. And he pitches his tent in what you and I now know as Sodom. He thinks it's a wonderful and glorious place. And he believes it will be a great place to raise his family, to raise his herds, and to grow his business. You travel through several chapters in the book of Genesis, and you get to chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, his uncle Abraham is visited by three guests. You may know this chapter. Those three guests, one of whom is God, two of whom are angels, and they've come to kind of communicate with Abraham. They've come to bring a message to him. He does not know who they are, but he welcomes them. He offers them grand hospitality and celebrates their coming and welcomes them with the red carpet and lays it all out for them. In fact, if you were to read Genesis chapter 18, you would count no fewer than 11 different acts of hospitality that Abraham offers his guests. It is an amazing array of hospitality. So much so that we here at TREACH and many other churches use those first eight verses of Genesis chapter 13 to teach our hospitality team to help them to know how important it is to welcome guests and to help them feel at home and to be a part of the community of faith. It's a powerful text to translate that word. And so Abraham offers this to his friends, and and they are so excited to be with him. And and then uh, Abraham comes to a realization that, golly, at least one of these guests is God. He had not recognized God initially, but he now recognizes that it's God. And God begins to communicate with Abram. And in part, what uh, what God says to Abraham is, uh, I just need you to know that the people and the community of Sodom are, are not a great folk. In fact, if you're to read Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, it says, the Lord said, the cries of injustice from Sodom and Gomorrah are countless, and their sins are very serious. God is real clear to say, where your nephew Lot is, not a good place. Uh, the people are not good, they're not doing well, they don't do the right thing, uh, and they're not, uh, it's not right. Well, this is not new news, actually. The reality is, if you go way back to Genesis chapter 13, the very verse after Lot says, hey, I want to go over there, that's a, that looks like a great place. The very next verse, verse 13 of chapter 13, literally says, now the people of Sodom were very evil and always sinning against the Lord. Well, wouldn't you like to be there? I mean, that's a great place, right? Always sinning against the Lord, always doing the wrong thing, always well known for not being hospitable, always understood to be the wrong kind of people. Why would Lot want to go there? But he finds himself there, right? And in fact, um, after Abram has offered this great source of hospitality to uh, God and the uh, angels, God has a further conversation with Abraham. It's actually, I believe, a prayer. And it's the last several verses of the chapter 18 in Genesis. You may have read it. Abram begins to talk to God and he wants to save the town of Sodom because his nephew lives there. And he will do anything and everything he can to save his nephew. So he enters into a dialogue that I'll call a prayer with God. And he first starts, "Uh, my Lord, my God, I hope you won't betray me, but I want to ask you, if you find at least 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you not save this community? You may be familiar with the prayer. And God says, of course I'll save the community if I find 50 righteous people. And instantly Abraham knows he's got a hook in God. And so he goes on to do what you and I have often done in our prayer. He makes a deal with God. You ever made a deal with God in your prayers? Yeah. He says, God, if you find 40 righteous people, will you save that town? Yes, I will. If you find 30 right, yes, I will. If you find 20 righteous people, will you? if you find 10 righteous people, will you save this town? And God ultimately says, yes, if I can find 10 righteous people, I will save this community. Now, you and I know in hindsight God's never going to find 10 righteous people in this town, but God makes a deal with Abraham. Abraham is excited that this town is going to be saved because he knows Lot and his family, they might equal 10 righteous people, and therefore the town of Sodom and Gomorrah, they may be saved. Abram has all the hope in the world. That's where we find ourselves in chapter 19. The portion of Genesis that you may be familiar with that highlights why and how the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. I want you to listen for the Word of God from the Tanakh. I'm going to read this morning from the Tanakh. It's the Hebrew Bible. All this book contains are the Old Testament texts of Scripture. And they're in a specific order. The word Tanakh is actually an acronym. The T stands for Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The N stands for Nevi'im, which are the prophets. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets come in the middle. And then the KH stands for Ketuvim, which are the writings, like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're slightly out of the order that you and I are familiar with. But in the Tanakh, it's written by Hebrew scholars, translated by Hebrew scholars, and translated into English, and therefore I think might give us a more accurate understanding of what takes place at Sodom and Gomorrah. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19, the two angels, these are the two who'd come to visit Abram, the two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to greet them, and bowing low with his face to the ground, he said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night and bathe your feet, then you may go on your way early. But they said, no, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned his way and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. He's doing great work, right? It starts very well, very good, all seems to be at at ease. Then verse 4, they had not yet lain down when the townspeople, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man gathered about the house, and they shouted to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may be intimate with them. I told you this was going to be deep stuff, okay? We're not done yet. So Lot went out to them to the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my friends, do not commit such a wrong. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you please. Hello. But do not do anything to these men, since they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, this is scripture, brothers and sisters. Verse 9. But they said, Stand back. The fellow, they said, came here as an alien, and already he acts the ruler. Now we will deal worse with him than with them. And they passed, pressed hard against the person of Lot and moved forward to break the door. But the men stretched out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And the people who were at the entrance of the house, young and old, they struck with blinding light so that they were helpless to find the entrance. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It felt a little weird to say that, didn't it? Because we feel just a little dirty hearing and reading this portion of Scripture, don't we? It feels just a little awkward. I can assure you that in all three services, you being the third, um, everybody's had a little bit of a puzzling look on their face, a troubled look, and wondering... um, here in church? Or what is this? Why why are we reading this? Well, because again, as a church that values biblical relevance, we need to look at all the scripture, not just those that we want to. And so here we go. So again, um, after the angels have visited Abraham and after uh, Abraham has struck a deal with God to find ten righteous people. We find ourselves here. And it starts, as I pointed out already, really well, right? Lod is offering the same kind of hospitality to his strangers that his uncle offered to the same strangers, right? And so he, he's welcomed them at the gate. He's acknowledged to them that it's not safe to stay in the community, in the square, so will you please come to my home and you can lay down and rest and I'll fix you a meal. And he does and they have a great meal. And, and, and everything seems well and at ease, right? And then we find ourselves in verse 4. And I read from uh, the Tanakh because I think uh, it quite literally gives the greater and more appropriate impression of who the people are who come to the door. Because in the original Hebrew, it acknowledges that it's the whole town. It's not just just the men of the town, it's the whole town. Remember, it says, when the townspeople, the men of Sodom, uh, all the people to the very last man, Everybody comes knocking on the door. And so when they knock on the door, uh, it's not the welcome wagon, is it? (laughs) It's not, hey, we're glad you're here. Welcome to the neighborhood. It's the whole town come to violate the guests. So much so that even when we read the text, we feel like, ugh, I, I don't want to know this. I don't want to know that this is happening. I don't want to hear this, read this, understand this, and yet here it is. And the people of Sodom, who, by the way, we were told in chapter 18, are vile, and they are violent, and they violate people. Guess what they're about to do, or at least want to do? They want to violate. Now, I I, I say this because sometimes we have translated this as saying, this is why homosexuality is wrong. It's right here. That's not what this is about. This is about violating people. This is about doing a vile thing to another human being. This is about emasculating the guests who've come. This is what one does in prison to people you don't like. This is what one does at wartime when I want to emasculate and make you feel less than human. I want to rape you. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're asking to do. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It has everything to do with sexual violence. Just like gangs do, just like sometimes when a a culture perpetrates genocide on another culture, some of the ways that they do that in order to make you less than human is to cause sexual violence to be created. And so when we hear that and read that in Scripture, we're like, whoa, hands off, I don't want to know this stuff. And yet here it is, just as we were told that Sodom would be. And so they want to violate the reason we know that this is more about sexual violence and violation than it is sexuality is there's, a, there's another story in Judges chapter 19, almost the exact same scenario, different people, but in Gibeah, a guest shows up, a male guest, he has a concubine, he comes to a home in Gibeah, he's welcomed and offered hospitality, and then the people of Gibeah do the very same thing. They come knocking on the door, they say, who's the man who's come tonight? We want to violate him. And the guest does something atrocious. He says, oh, please don't take my guest, he's come under my roof. Please take his concubine and have your way with her. And that's where we find ourselves now in Genesis 19. Not only have the people of Sodom done an atrocious thing, but what Lot does in turn makes you and me in modern day times think, whoa. Remember what Lot did? oh, oh, please don't take my friends. I've got two daughters who are virgins. Will you just take them and do what you will with them? And all of us, when we hear that, I literally heard a, a groan out in the congregation when I read that. We think to ourselves, how could that be? How could that happen? Why would that be? Why would that happen? And it begs the point that um, we cannot justify that behavior, we cannot accept that behavior. At, at least I hope that that's true. Can, can I get an affirmation that, that what Lot does would not be acceptable today? Is that true? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I just, I just want to make sure I was in the right room, right? So what we see is what's going on in Sodom is clearly atrocious and unacceptable, and even what Lot is offering is atrocious and unacceptable. And yet, in the culture of the day, Lot is doing what's acceptable and, in fact, um, appropriate. Even though we would not consider it so, in his day, the guest, the person for whom I'm offering hospitality, is the most important person, and therefore I've got to cover their back, I've got to have their back, and I've got to do what I believe will save them. That's what Lot is doing. It's hard to comprehend but that's what the oriental hospitality offers. And so, when we reflect on this, we have to begin to wonder, man, um, I don't understand this. This is weird, and I need to come to some kind of reconciliation, and if you hang with me, I hope we will get there, friends. But we're not there yet. Notice that when Lot offers his daughters, the people of Sodom get all judgmental on him, This guy is a foreigner, he's an alien, he's come into town, now he's playing the judge on us. Who does he think he is? As if somehow they've not done anything wrong. And then they want to harm him, right? They want to do the same thing to him that they had offered to do to the guests in his midst. And then the the angels, of course, pull Lot back, blind the people of Sodom, and acknowledge that this is not going to go well. And of course, if you read Genesis chapter 19, the rest of the chapter, it does not go well for Sodom. They get destroyed because of their sin, their sin, which is clearly sexual violence, deep and desperate inhospitality, and pride, God destroys them. And I want to encourage you to read today, this afternoon, both Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 to discover the whole story, and it's really quite impactful and powerful. And so what we begin to glean is, clearly Sodom's not a great place, right? I mean, that would be obvious, I hope. But even what we read about today in Genesis 19 is not the totality of everything that's wrong in Sodom. In fact, when we read some of the prophets who are written, who are writing centuries after this time frame, they begin to unpack a bigger story, that there's something even more profoundly wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah that we don't even know about here. It's even more desperate and dark. Take, for instance, uh, the prophet Isaiah. As Isaiah opens his very uh, first book, he begins to tell a story of Sodom that's not Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually the Israelite nation. And he says it like this in chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, they don't exist anymore. They've been gone for hundreds of years. We read about it just a year. But what he's saying to the Israelites is, you're just like those people. You're behaving just like them, and you're doing all the wrong. He would go on to say a few verses later in verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And in part, what Isaiah is saying is, this is what Sodom didn't do, and you're not doing it either. So learn again, Israelites, how to do justice and how to be kind and how to uh, offer uh, the oppressed and how to defend the orphan, right? It doesn't end there. You go into the prophet Jeremiah in the 23rd chapter and he says this. Same thing, he's talking to the prophets and Israelites, not Sodom and Gomorrah. He says it this way, in the prophets of Jerusalem, I saw something horrible. They commit adultery and tell lies. They encourage evildoers so that no one turns from their wickedness. In my eyes, they are no better than Sodom. Its people are like Gomorrah. So part of what we begin to glean is even hundreds of years after Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, the Israelites and the prophets know and lift them up as the wrong kind of folk, doing the wrong kind of thing, being an abomination to God through their sins. And then we get to the prophet Ezekiel, and he's abundantly clear. He just lays it straight out. In chapter 16, verse 49, he says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. Wow, that was pretty straightforward. So between Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, some hundreds of years after Sodom's destruction, we begin to see that. They, they, they might as well just be the poster child for the seven deadly sins, right? I, I mean, it's just written all over everything that they've done. And we begin to ask ourselves then, man, what do we need to learn from not only this day, the day of destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but from the bigger picture of who they were and what it is they did? And I want to suggest there are a couple of things we can learn from this story that hopefully will bring us a bit more hope. And encouragement about who we are. I think the first thing that we learn from Sodom and Gomorrah is behavior matters. I'm just going to park that right here. Behavior matters. Is it not so that what Sodom and Gomorrah were challenged by, was that they were full of pride, they were haughty, they uh, were lazy, they clearly didn't take care of the poor, they perpetrated sexual violence, they were full of themselves, they didn't take care of the needy, their behavior was atrocious. And the outcome was death, destruction, harm, God's judgment. In the Old Testament, that judgment becomes real clear, right? I mean... (laughs) We see it uh, on more than one occasion where people's behavior, most frequently the Israelites, would do something against God's will, would not be about justice, would not be about mercy, would not be about God's will and God's ways, and there would be judgment and there would be condemnation and there would be dilemma after dilemma. Sodom and Gomorrah highlight this, right? Behavior matters. Particularly once I uh, claim faith as a follower of Jesus, My behavior is not what gains me salvation, but my behavior is in response to my salvation, and my behavior needs to be about those things that Isaiah wrote and spoke and those things about which uh, uh, Ezekiel said don't do, right? In fact, that's what our judgment is about, right? When we read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25, where he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goat, a part of what he highlights is we need to be about bringing drink to the thirsty and clothing to the naked and food to the hungry and visiting those in sick and in prison and, and being with the outcast, right? And he, he literally says, when you didn't do this to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do it to me, and you will go off and be cursed. Matthew 25 highlights that our judgment is about how we behave. And while I would imagine, and I hope rightfully so, there's not a one of us in this room who imagines, who believes, who feels as though we are like Sodom and Gomorrah. I want us to pause just for a moment to reflect. Have we ever perpetuated an injustice? Have we ever uh, been so full of ourselves that we thought we were better than someone else? Have we ever peddled in excess and ignored those in need? Have we actually perpetrated sexual violence? And while I would imagine for the vast preponderance of us we have not done the latter, we know for decades now that the church, the followers of Jesus, denomination after denomination, not ours alone, have been caught and found wanting with regard to that. And so the answer to the question, are we like Sodom and Gomorrah, unfortunately becomes more than we think and more than we want and more than it should be because we've often been found wanting in our behavior as a follower of Jesus. Now, friends, that's the bad news. And a part of what we know is that in this behavior, We are found in our sin, and the Scriptures are clear that sin is often tied with death, sin and death. And sometimes sin leads to physical death, and always sin leads to spiritual death. And therefore, we find ourselves a little bit more like Sodom and Gomorrah than we might imagine, and that's the bad news. But the good news is this. We have a Savior, and that Savior has helped us to overcome And that Savior, Jesus, has given us new ways of being and a new way forward. It's why I cherish so much what the Apostle Paul writes when he writes to the church at Corinth in the very last chapter, chapter 15 of his first letter, when he says, thank God that we have the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the gift of the capacity to overcome our sinful behavior. We have the capacity to know that we've got a Savior who will help us move forward and give us new life. Wash those sins away. What a powerful gift that is. And so it becomes incumbent upon us to do this one thing, to reflect on our own lives, to determine, am I living in excess? Am I overlooking the the, the neglected? Am I uh, full of myself and pride and haughty? Am I lazy? Am I perpetrating? Am I perpetuating and to lay ourselves at the mercy of our Savior and allow Him to wash His grace over us and to allow Him to pour out His mercy so that we may know that we can be made new and that we can cease from these behaviors and that we can encourage others to cease from these behaviors. Because I don't know about you, but... I'm going to try my level best, and I'm going to do what I can to not fall into the trap of sin and death. But unfortunately, I'm human, as are all of us, and we must find a way to do other. That's our call, friends. That's our challenge. So my hope for each of us is that we will find that victory, that we will discover that joy, And that we will understand the possibilities of overcoming our humanity, our mortality, the Sodom and Gomorrah that unfortunately sometimes dwells within us. And we can receive the gift of new life in Christ. And the powerful gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. May it be so for you, for us, and for God's kingdom. Will you pray with me? Holy and blessed God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he helps us to conquer the grave. Thank you that he gives us the power to overcome and that we can, Lord, find better behavior and we can overcome sin and death. May it be so this day and the next. Give us, God, your courage that we might find new and better ways to be your people and to live in your will and your ways. This is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of the one Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.